Bible, please turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you, or should be. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then you'll find 1 Corinthians. This day, we celebrate, we thank God for the resurrection. The Apostle Paul tells us that if what we celebrate on this day never happened, there isn't anything worth celebrating. Nothing. All there is for humanity is the grave and condemnation. But he also lets us as believers know that if it wasn't for the resurrection, not only is there nothing to celebrate, there's no such thing as faith that saves a person. And he grounds all of it in the gospel where we hear the reason that we know Christ was crucified for our sins and raised on the third day. Therefore, this morning and always, our faith is not in vain. Without the resurrection, faith in God is worthless. Let me pray and we'll begin. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. God, I beg of you to fill me with your spirit for this text and for this message. God, become my words, work in me, overcome my mind and my selfish ambitions and all that would get in the way of Christ crucified in this passage and risen for us. Enable everyone that is here in this room, from the youngest to the oldest, to comprehend the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This I ask in His name and for His sake and for us. Amen. Let me read the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach And so you believed. Paul has been talking at length now for several chapters about things like spiritual gifts and unity and love and conduct for the Lord's Supper and head coverings and all of these things. But now, at the end of this letter, he reminds them of the gospel. He brings them back to the main thing, which is what he started 1 Corinthians with in chapter 1, and that's Christ crucified. So Paul never ever assumes the gospel. It never goes unsaid at any point. To assume the gospel 
even today in the church to assume that it's there, that it's underneath, that people know that, of course, they're saved by grace and not by their works and only in Christ alone. To assume that is to lose that. Make no mistake. Notice the ongoing relevance of the gospel for the Christian in verses 1 and 2. The gospel is the one message they heard preached to them from Paul that they had received in the past, but that which they were currently standing in and were being saved by. Being saved by. The gospel doesn't just save me once in the past when I believe it. It is saving me every day or I am not going to be saved when all is said and done. I'm never relating to God then through any other means but His grace for me in Christ the Son. The gospel then is constant in its purpose. It's constant in its effect for the whole Christian life. All of it. So I'm not saved and don't have standing with God based on my works or my sanctification over time. I never stop standing in the gospel. I never step out of this message for my salvation into something else for my salvation. Not even in the way I think and perceive even the good works to which we are called and are necessary. I don't even look outside the gospel to know whether or not I believe the gospel. The gospel is a message of absolution. It's a message of forgiveness. Works never replace gospel in this formula. I hear the gospel. I receive the gospel. I stand in the gospel. I'm being saved by the gospel. We abide in Christ only by His proclamation, His provision of forgiveness and righteousness in death and in resurrection. Notice the end of verse 2 here. Everything in verses 1 and 2 is true for someone if, okay, if they hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So the command to hold fast here in the sentence is simply the command to believe said in two different ways in this verse. Again, this calls for, to sound redundant, deliberate intentionality in my thinking about what I believe saves me. Don't just believe it. Hold fast to it. My life depends on the effectiveness of this message and not a message The gospel is not something that sits in my past or my peripheral vision as what simply got me in the door of being a Christian. And now that I'm saved, I can now finally get down to the business of glorifying God with my life by serving Him. No, no, no. It is belief that has to be constant. It is belief that always has to be there. I must hold fast to the message all the time. We do not stand in what the gospel has produced, can produce, or will produce in us. We were saved, are standing saved, and will be saved, and are being saved by the gospel, full stop. The message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to forgive sinners. That's it. That's the gospel. What Jesus did for me is the gospel. We don't hold fast with our hands. We hold fast with faith, with belief in a message. For, 
Look there for that word in verse 3. Always follow Paul and the epistles' arguments. They're arguing that you and I would believe a certain way. So that's why we see those transition and grounding words like for. All the greatest theology is bound up in these tiny little words. So for in verse 3, because here's why. I delivered to you as of first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That word for at the beginning of verse 3 means that Paul is going to repeat the word he preached to them again. The same word they received when he preached it the first time, when they heard it the first time. The word in which they stand and by which they're being saved and to which they must hold fast. And it's the gospel. That is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus in verses 3 and 4. And what is of first importance about the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus is that this is the word to which a believer must hold fast or that believer is believing in vain. To believe in vain is not the same thing as not believing something. You still believe something when you believe it in vain. It's just that your belief in it is worthless. There's a way to believe the gospel that is in vain. That's very strange for the text to say. If someone believes they are standing in Christ by any other means than the word that was preached to them and that they received, they are deceiving themselves that they're saved. How would anyone come to believe that? Right? That their standing in Christ is based on some other means than the gospel. How would anyone ever come to believe that? I've never heard someone say that, we might say. Right? I've never heard that said. That... Nobody says that. Well, we don't say it like that, do we? We don't say it like that. Nobody says the words, you're saved by grace, but you remain in Christ. You stand in Christ by your works and by your progress and sanctification. That's not how you're saved, but it does have something to do with how you know you're saved. Well, no one says it like that. No one says it like that. If we said it like that, any believer that knew the Bible at all would know that was false. That's not how we say that you may be able to stand in something other than Christ for your salvation. We do say things like this, though, when we preach or when we talk to one another. You better be here every time the doors are open or you're not a good Christian. You better tithe or you don't have any grounds to ask God for anything. You better serve when you're asked, or maybe you're not committed enough. You better not miss church to take your kid to football practice or baseball practice if you really love the Lord, if you really value Him more than football or more than your family. And Jesus said you, you had to give these things up. So if you don't love God enough to not take your kid to practice, you, you might not be a Christian. You, you better step up and do what needs done. Or can you call yourself a Christian? If you really love the Lord, you'll attend more Bible studies. You'll pray more. You'll have a more effective prayer life. Your prayers will get answered more often in the way that you want them to. And a thousand other things like that. That's how we talk. That is how we say it. 
That's what we imply. We say it by putting the onus on us and what we must do now that we are saved. It's like that's just the entry program. That's what the gospel is for. You get people in the door, in the church, and then you lay it on them. Now that you're saved by free grace in Christ, you had better live like this or you have no business calling yourself a Christian. Or something like that. We say it by questioning whether or not we're actively doing enough to prove that we're saved. You are saved by grace, but what's the... um, The reformers, and today, capital R-T, Reform Theology, always says this phrase. You are saved by faith alone, but faith is not alone. Implying that, yes, you're saved by grace through faith, but don't get too happy about it. Because that faith will always come out in a certain amount of works and goodness and things like that. And if you don't have that, if you don't have that, if you can't point to that, You know, you you may need to check whether or not you're saved. And so what are we doing? We're taking eyes off of Christ, off of the gospel, even if the intentions are good. But that's how we read the commands to do good works, even as Christians. You know, so you take the focus off of the gospel and you put it on the self. You put it on the works. We don't intend to do that, but that's words have meaning. Beloved, propositions have meaning. God's Word teaches that by simply not then, please hear the Word of God, by simply not constantly bringing people back to the Gospel to hear, we imply that our standing is in our works. We point someone to themselves to hold fast to, and that's as hopeless as a doctrine of demons. The Gospel to which we hold fast is not a message to prove we believe something. It's a pronouncement of what's been done. It's a message of what Christ has done to save sinners, period. And it's perfectly sufficient for that. Neglecting that, assuming that, which is what we do a lot more than we neglect it. It's like you don't even need to say it because Christians know, of course I'm saved by grace, but now... That's how you break bruised reeds. That's how we snuff out flickering wicks, which is something Jesus would never do. That is how we give death through our words instead of life. We kill in two ways with our words. We kill those who are struggling and weak in their faith and having a hard time being a Christian, right? Because over time, they feel less and less like one, not because the gospel ever changed, but because the terms have changed and keep changing. Right. What if I decide that we need a building fund? Right. What am I going to use as leverage to get you to contribute to it? Right. Again, the gospel doesn't change, but the terms change over time. Yes, you're saved by grace, but are you saved? That's, that's how we get around. We just constantly build doubt into salvation with what you're supposed to be doing. If you're saved, then step up. If you love the Lord, if you value His church more than you value your own home, because your house has a nice roof and ours is crumbling, if you don't give, then you don't care, right? That's, that's the way we normally talk. 
And so we make people for whom Christ died and rose again believe they're really not up to this challenge. They're too sinful to really benefit from His grace. So this gospel must not be for them. We kill the weaker ones with guilt, right? We kill the strong by commending them. We give strength to those that do want their works to count for something, that do want to cling to obedience for something. And listen, if you have the right personality and the right disposition and a stronger will than other people have, you'll eat that kind of teaching up. You'll love it. You'll demand it. We, we won't even hear it for the lie that it is. Because maybe it just goes right over our head. What? Tell me what to do and I'll do it. What do you mean? What can't I do? Maybe I'm the kind of person that does what I'm told. Especially if God is telling me to do it. And has a sense of honor and values integrity. All very good things on the surface, right? Absolutely. You do what you're told. So we kill the stronger ones by making them look to performance as the byproduct of faith to the point. Say, well, how how can that be? You know that's where you are when grace has become a nuisance to you. Oh, here we go again. Right? That, that's what I, when I was in Brawley, I, I, I've talked to different individual people about this, but I don't know if I've ever talked about it from here, that a gentleman came into my office, and, and it was funny the way it came about. My kids were like in this homeschool collective with other kids, and um, some of the kids are from our church, and this little girl walked up to my youngest daughter and said, um, my mom and dad said that your dad doesn't preach the gospel. And you can't tell Gianna that. She'll fight you. And she'll win, just so you know. So she comes to me all upset. I'm like, well, that's, that's certainly concerning if somebody thinks I don't preach the gospel. So I call the dad, you know, Danny, why don't you come in and we'll talk? And he's like, okay. And I said, I, I, I just want to make sure I'm understanding this right. I know kids talk, but apparently your daughter said that I don't preach the gospel. He said, oh, no, 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 no. It's the exact opposite of that. All you do is preach the gospel. He said, and it just, he's like, we, we've got it. We, we get it, man. We, we know that Jesus is sufficient for us. We need more. We need to move on to other things, to deeper things, higher things. Nay, more important things. Hmm. That is an interesting argument coming from sinners which we all are. Would you stop talking about the sufficiency of Jesus all the time? Okay. Jesus for you all the time gets boring? Do you you see the connection here? Somewhere, if, if that's the case, somewhere I've heard something or have come to believe something that means... That's not enough, though. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Where is though and but? Where is that coming from? It's not coming from the gospel. The gospel is a declaration that it is finished. No ifs, ands, buts, or those. But finished. 
And I would ask then, what is of first importance in your opinion in the Bible? What is of first importance for unbelievers and believers alike to make sure that they hear? What is, so apparently Paul's not right. What is of first importance? Again, if false doctrine sounded like false doctrine, we wouldn't believe it. Especially those that know the word better. Those that don't know the word very well may very easily believe false doctrine. So we we can't ever take the chance that we aren't being clear. And Paul says that if we aren't holding fast, which that implies intentionality. Again, remember that. If we aren't holding fast to the gospel, which is nothing other than the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus for sinners, then our belief, our faith is actually in vain. If I've stopped holding fast to that and have begun to hold fast to literally anything or anyone else, I'm believing in vain. That's how serious gospel centrality, gospel superiority is to believers. That's who he's writing here. Notice you you only look to what you believe to know whether or not your faith is for nothing. You see that? You only, you, you don't set out to prove your faith. If I asked you, do you have a savior? And you say yes, that's enough. I believe in Christ for me. No matter how mature we are in other things, to let go of the gospel, to hold fast to something else, makes our faith pointless. Pointless. There's, there's, you don't have a free hand. With this hand I hold to the gospel, with this hand I hold... No, no, no. You, you, we don't have any free hands. Our hands are too full with the gospel to hold on to anything else. This is all about Jesus. It really is. This is literally, really all about the gospel. The gospel is in the text in accordance with the scriptures. Do we see that? So, I never need to depend on my own experiences or my feelings to tell me whether the gospel is true. I look to God's word. I know it's true because he tells me there in his word that it's true. That's how I know. If I have faith in this, I am saved. Full stop. It is a message that never changes, especially not while I'm struggling and and sometimes climbing and, and sometimes falling The message of what saves me never changes. I stand in a message. Nothing else. That's why Paul gives all that verifiable evidence there in verses 5 through 8. Those details. He's saying, listen, if you doubt whether or not the resurrection really happened, which is apparently what was happening in Corinth for some of the believers, we'll see that in just a few moments here in verses 12 through 20. But Paul is, these people were still alive when Paul wrote this, right? The Gospels were in, the New Testament was written very close to when Jesus rose from the dead within 70 years at the most of all that he did, these things were written and done. Paul is saying, look, over 500 people saw him alive. So, so much for the argument that, well, maybe they were hallucinating because they were so sorrowful. And, and beloved, 500 people can have 500 different hallucinations, no question. 500 people in a group cannot have the same hallucination. That's not the way hallucinations work. And Paul says, listen, go ask James. Go ask Peter. Go ask, there's over 5, 
hundred people for you to ask. That's why, that, because he wants them to be grounded in it. And the gospel is of, as we've been talking about, of first importance. And listen, I would encourage us, I'd beg with us, not to take that phrase lightly. And not to give it simple lip service. That's not why it's there. It's, it's not, the gospel is not of first importance in the sense that you get it. It's very important to get. But then once you have it, you move on. It's the first thing to get. But eventually the way you're talking about the gospel is, oh, it's definitely the most important thing for sure. But we have to move beyond it. We have to get here and there and there. We were never meant to use the words. How is a person saved? Well, we're saved by grace alone in Christ alone. Where would we ever get the idea that that's like a throwaway statement that you make sure you get into the talk? Right. And again, I, I would go, I would go to the deathbed evangelism that, that I'm sure many of us have had. I don't know if you call it the opportunity to do. It's never pleasant when somebody's dying. But you, we, we preach a different gospel when somebody's five minutes from dying. Right? All you have to do is believe. That's literally all you have to do. Just believe. Just call out and you'll be saved. Because you're going to die in a couple minutes. So you don't have any time to undo it by not doing stuff that proves you did it. We don't preach the gospel like that to the living. It's not just grace when you might have 20 or 30 more years to blow it if you're not serious enough about it, right? We were never meant to throw away, to use as a throwaway term that we're saved by grace and then move on to something higher from God. Something, again, the law is not the highest word from God. Romans 1.16 is crystal clear about this. Right? It's, it's like we want people to move on from the gospel to the law. Because the law is the big thing. No, no, it's not. First of all, the law is a 430 year long parenthesis in God's plan for the nations. And Paul says as much in the book of Galatians. Because they're trying to mix law and gospel. As these two equal words from God. And so you need both. And you need to do what the law says. And you need to do what the gospel says. Which the gospel doesn't say anything about what you should do. It says what Christ has done. He said, Paul says, why would you think that something that came 430 years after the covenant with Abraham is what you need to concern yourselves with now that the seed of Abraham has come? Yes, we're saved by grace. I mean, if we get to a point where we're just blowing over grace, then we really need it. Yes, we're saved by grace. It's of first importance, of course, but we just killed it. We just took all the meaning out of first importance. Of first importance means you never move on from it. And Paul says, Paul says that. Here's what's amazing when we're talking about a first importance here. Paul says that the gospel is of first importance in a litany of, of tons of other instructions on how to live that he's just given since really chapter five of chapter four of first Corinthians. He's been giving instructions and how we ought to live in light of this gospel. 
all through this book. And apparently, that word is not as important as the word of the gospel. That's what words mean. And remember, instructions, these are instructions that you and I would focus on as what one has to move beyond the gospel if they really want to get a hold of it. We'll go right to the imperative text, the command text that tell you what to do. And yet Paul brings them back here in 15. Lest in hearing instructions, as they've heard and as they are to do, they forget it or try to move on from it to higher things, more important things. The gospel is just for getting in. We, we, we're in. We've got it. You're being saved by it right now. It didn't just save you once and for all in the past, which it did. But it's also an active word, a living word that is saving you and I now. So it has to always be believed. Right? You, you, you don't just believe once and then you get on to the other business. The priority is always what do you believe? What do you believe? Not just what saved you in the beginning. What do you believe is saving you right now? How do you believe that when all is said and done, you will be saved and be in that number? What are you looking to? Because that would be, Paul is implying, that would be the thing that is of first importance, regardless of what we say. Now, we might say, maybe we would argue like this, right? Well, breathing is of first importance to live, Tony, and you don't think about breathing all the time. In fact, you don't have to focus on it at all. It just happens. You just do it. You don't even think about it. So wouldn't it also be true then that we don't think about the gospel all the time? You don't have to do that. You, once you get it, you've got it, and then you just do it like you would breathe. First of all, again, the gospel is not something I do. The, the gospel is not something that can be done. It's the message of what Jesus does and gives to me freely. And I, I look, I used to think a different way. When we, my friend and I planted a church in Newark, Ohio, our four core values, worship Jesus, love Jesus, so far so good, live Jesus, proclaim Jesus. How does one live Jesus? How does one do the message of salvation? It's like we can't even let the gospel be the gospel. We, nobody's saying there aren't works for the believer. We just, we, we aren't there yet. There, there has to be confidence and hope in the gospel alone before we can get into all the nitty-gritty, because if we get into the nitty-gritty of things or the details of things without being solid and clear on the gospel, we're believing in vain. We're going to pick something else to hold fast to. So dangerous, so precarious for believers all the time. All the time. Such... An important thing. The gospel is greater. It's, it's a matter of, it's not a matter of first importance in the same way that breathing is. If you don't breathe, you die. That's a physical reality. So breathing could be said it's of first importance, but not 
That's not how the gospel is of first importance in the text. It's a matter of first importance in the sense that it matters more than anything else. You need several things happening in your body to live and be alive and not drop dead, right? So all of those things are of first importance. Breathing is the one we're conscious of, right? That's the one we know is happening all the time. I don't know what's going on in my kidneys right now. They're working. I don't have to go to the bathroom, right? But I mean, if my kidneys fail, I'm probably going to die, right? So notice how the text is arguing here. All the Word of God is the holy, perfect Word of God. No question. However, clearly, there are some words from God that are more important than others. Well, how do you pick and choose? You don't. You just listen. Paul just told me what's of first importance. The new covenant of Christ is described specifically as better than and superior to the old covenant, the Sinai covenant, the law. And Jesus is a better high priest than Moses. And better, better, better. You get all through the letter to the Hebrews in the context, again, of 1 Corinthians alone, just this letter we're looking at, let's just stay right there. The gospel in chapter 15 is put forward in the text as more important, specifically then, in Corinthians, the apostles, who they are, divisions in the church, church discipline. It's more important than marriage. It's more important than whether or not we eat food sacrificed to idols. It's more important than spiritual gifts or church unity or love or the gifts of the Spirit or what constitutes orderly worship. It's more important, according to Paul, than all of those things. More important. If you put all these things on a list, which that's not what he's doing, but the gospel on a list would be of first importance. The gospel is greater than the word of the law, than imperatives, commands, now that we are under, as Christians, the law of Christ and not of Moses. The gospel is superior to the law. It is supreme over the law. The scripture, again, literally calls the new covenant better. And just as I said a few minutes ago, the the, the gospel is the most important word that God has spoken. And I'll die on that hill. A million times. Absolutely. Just so we're clear. I will die on that hill. It's of first importance. Which just listen to that coming from God the Holy Spirit for a minute. It's a weighty thing for us to hear that God has already prioritized the order of the things he said to us. We don't do that. We don't have the ability to do that. We try to level the Bible out, and we mess it up when we do that. We just try to flatten it out as one word. Beloved, it's two words. It's law and gospel. We need to keep hearing and receiving the gospel, that word, more than we need to hear any other. A Christian wandering alone in the Sudan in fear for his or her life that has believed on Christ has everything she needs To be okay. She doesn't need to make sure a teacher comes along that says, now listen, you're going to have to do this and this and this. And if you don't do these things, by the way, what would that look like in the Sudan? What would it look like to give instructions to a believer in Iran? 
Right? What does it look like there? You see how that might change on the context. You know what doesn't change? Whether it's the sands of Iran or the cities of America, the gospel. The message of what Christ has done for sinners. That's enough to save. If you got nothing else, if you never got a Bible, faith in Christ is enough to save. I trust that all the Christians in the room believe that. We need to keep hearing and receiving this word more than any other. We need to keep standing in this word. We need to hold fast to this word or we've believed in vain. Grace plus a little elbow grease will get you a lot of condemnation. That's again, that's why we get that objective evidence from Paul in verses 5 to 8. He says, listen, the risen Jesus even appeared to me. And I was born at the wrong time for him technically to have appeared to me. I wasn't at the stage in my life when he was around that I was listening. He appeared to me, though, and I was late to the party is what Paul is saying. Paul says he was the least of all the apostles. There's no reason for Jesus to have taken his time to appear to him, which he did for almost three years in the desert. Jesus taught Paul individually. Paul says, I'm unworthy to be an apostle in the first place because before God saved me, I was persecuting people that believed Jesus was their Savior. I helped them get in prison. I held coats when they stoned who I now realize was my brother Stephen to death right in front of me. I consented to it. I wanted it to happen. Everybody that wanted to roll up their sleeves and throw stones on him, I held their coats so they weren't burdened too much to hold enough rocks. That was me. What happened? The gospel happened. Excuse me. And it happened in a way, Paul was saved in a way that reminds us of how salvation happens at all. You're going this way. You think this, you believe this, and then the light shines. And God says, no, 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 no. You're not going to Damascus to help hang more Christians. You're going to proclaim me now. Excuse me. That's how it happens. We're in the tomb, dead in trespasses and sins. And the life-giving word of Christ, as with Lazarus, makes us come forth. Right? This is a beautiful thing. (coughs) Excuse me. But then Paul says at the beginning of verse 10, even though I was a persecutor, as he says in Timothy, an insolent opponent, but by the grace of God I am what I am. Grace made me an apostle. In verse 10, right? In grace, that is because of the gospel, Paul is saying, even I am a bona fide apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul. And he says that this grace toward him, notice this now, wasn't for nothing. Why not? Because he says he worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So there you stop and say, Tony, see? See, yes, there's grace, but doesn't this imply or tell us that the evidence of grace is hard work that because there's grace in there there will be hard work yes doing what in what is there hard work well when the text punches us like that we go back and read before and after it again and again and again until the word sinks in 
What was the other place in the text? Again, what is the context of him saying, but the grace of God in me was not in vain because I worked harder than any of them, although it wasn't me working, it was grace within me. That's so big. But let's ask, what was, where did we see this language before? There's ways to connect in text. Where, have I seen this before? Have I, right? Where was the other place we saw the words in vain? We saw it back in verse 2. Remember? Let's go back up there. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Believed what in vain? The message Paul preaches to them. So what was Paul talking about working so hard at? Beloved, the preaching of the gospel. It comes right back to that in verse 11, doesn't it? Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, all those who preach the gospel, and so you believed. What is the means of belief? How does that come about? By preaching. We know that from verse 2. We also know it from texts like Romans 10, 14. How will they believe if they have not heard? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. How will they believe if they're not sent a preacher? Right? Paul is telling them that he works so hard to maintain the gospel as of first importance. To maintain the proclamation of the gospel so that their belief is not in vain. That's precisely what he's driving out here. How does a preacher ensure that our faith is not in vain. Apparently, by preaching a big, clear, beautiful, biblical gospel as of first importance and never wavering from it, ever. Not to see people get saved, not to see them stand saved, and not to see them be saved. Paul worked hard to convince them of this. Harder than anybody else. And then he lets you know that it was because God's grace was at work in me to do so. So Paul doesn't even take credit for his effort and his desire and zeal or ability in preaching. So watch now. We're not going to go through 12 through 20 like we did 1 through 11. So don't worry here, but watch as Paul does this. As he grounds the argument for genuine enduring faith in the resurrection specifically. That is to say, in the gospel. Here is how worthless our flesh is in all of this, is what Paul's about to make clear. If the gospel isn't true, if the climax of the gospel, this message never happened, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead so that he may bring us to life, which is good news, then our belief will be in vain. Absolutely. Apparently in Corinth there was some debate among the believers there that Jesus hadn't actually bodily, literally risen from the dead. And Paul teaches us a very important principle of the faith here, just by the way, that if you think of the doctrine of Scripture as this big brick wall, and each doctrine is a brick, Paul is teaching us here, look, if you take out one brick, you destroy the whole wall. And that's happening all over the place in contemporary theology. Do we really need the virgin birth? Do we really need to cling to that? It's kind of weird. So let's just take that brick out of the wall. What do you lose if you take away the virgin birth? You lose Jesus. If you take away the virgin birth, you lose the gospel. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, Paul says no one will be raised from the dead. If God can't accomplish resurrection, then there is no resurrection for anyone, not even apparently for Jesus. Look at 12. He says, 
Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? He's talking to Christians. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. You see that? And your faith is in vain. I don't need you preaching to me for my faith to not be in vain. Yes, we do. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have died believing, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are of all people most to be pitied so much for being good just for the sake of being good. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now look quickly at verse 14 and verse 17 again. Let me read those one more time. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So whatever preaching is meant to accomplish, it can't without the resurrection. 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Why does it matter so much that they believe without any doubt in the resurrection? It's not simply a matter of orthodoxy here, right? As though there are certain things that Christians believe. And if you don't believe these things, then you aren't a Christian. There's absolutely a sense in which that's true, right? If one denies that Jesus rose from the dead, he, he or she is not a Christian. They may profess to be, but they're not, right? But that's not the main reason it's so important to believe in the resurrection, not in this text. There's something much more practical being argued for here by Paul. And it goes back to verse 2 and verse 10 and really the whole first section. Beloved, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it means he isn't standing right now at God's right hand interceding for us. So we can work as hard as we want. We can try our absolute best. We can be as moral and as good and as honorable and as tolerant and as nice and respectful and accepting and kind as we want to be. We can even have faith that there is a God and that he's there and that he's holy and it won't work. It won't last. It won't accomplish anything. The Bible tells us this. It would gain us nothing but the grave. It will never be enough. It can't be enough. God will only ever be satisfied by the righteousness of Jesus for us, which is why God raised him from the dead. He had no business lying in the grave. He had never sinned. And God has given us the resurrection, this power in this message, in the gospel. And since Jesus has been raised from the dead, that means there's even more resurrection to come, that he was just the first of many. Jesus began a whole new race of people. Those who rise from the dead to eternal life. So our sin this morning won't keep either of us in the grave. Not Jesus and not us. All my sin that Jesus willingly took on himself to bear the punishment for me wasn't enough to keep him in the grave. And all my sin that I continue to struggle with, even though he died for me, is not enough to keep me in the grave. Because the one true living God is powerful enough to raise us both, and that is the gospel. Faith in God is worthless and futile without the resurrection. There is literally no point to Christianity, namely to faith. So faith isn't just a, a virtue human beings can work up and please God if they have enough of it. 
faith only means something if Jesus dying and rising from the dead for me is there to be the object of it. There's nothing I can do that will gain me a resurrection. That's only mine if Jesus rose from the dead. Only Jesus lived the life that makes God raise one from the dead. So I want to be found in Him. Faith gets its effectiveness, its power from the resurrection, beloved, not from us. It's not a mixture of God's grace and my desire or my performance or my will or my works. Christian faith is solely resurrection faith. That's how it's here. It is the resurrection life of Christ that causes me to believe, causes me to endure, causes me to stand, causes me to hold fast, and causes me to be saved. Nothing else. So I'm free, like I said the other night, I'm free to be exactly who God says I am. Forgiven, the sin problem addressed, no more fear of condemnation, none whatsoever. So now I am free to have the mind of Christ and be like Jesus and give my life away to my neighbors and my enemies, obeying the commands in service to them. Because the sin problem's fixed. The resurrection was not the end of the story of Jesus, was it? It was the beginning. Everything else was a prequel. Now the day of the gospel has come. So spread the tidings round wherever men is found, wherever human hearts and human woes abound. The comforter has come. Without the gospel, faith is in vain. But because of the gospel, because he is risen, nothing is in vain. Not even, as he will say, interestingly, at the end of 15, not even your labor in the Lord is in vain. Praise the risen Christ. He is yours, beloved, for the taking.